Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Alright, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. This is a special episode uh, and we want to talk about the events in Chicago. Um, I'm, I brought on my friend and brother, Pastor Charlie Dates, who is no stranger to the Jude 3 Project. Welcome, Pastor Dates. Thank you so much again for having me, Lisa. <laughs> thank you for agreeing to do this on such short notice. Um, so for our listeners who may have been sitting under a rock, uh, what what's going on in uh, Chicago? What's what happened in the situation with um, Luke, Laquan McDonald? Sure. So about 13 months ago, uh, a little bit more than that, actually, it's 400 days. Uh, there was a confrontation between Laquan McDonald, uh, who's a teenage boy, black man in Chicago, mm-hmm. and uh, the police. He was uh, allegedly harassing some businesses, uh, disturbing the peace and such in a particular area of our city. Actually, some of your listeners who fly into Chicago at Midway Airport would recognize, readily recognize where the location is because it's about 10 blocks from Midway. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's confronted by the, the police. He has a three-inch blade on him. Uh, he's also reported to have uh, swiped a tire but anyway, you could see from the video footage, the police kind of converge on him. He's walking in the middle of the street, and he then walks away from a police car while the police are coming out. And one cop, uh, an officer with the last name Van Dyke, pulls his weapon and literally empties a clip on the kid. He shoots him dead right there in the middle of the street, and then uh, even after he is dead, he unloads the remainder of his weapon, 16 shots in total, wow. and um, he had to, he was told by his partner not to reload. Ironically, um, uh, the superintendent of police, the state's attorney, none of them pressed charges. They just put the officer on administrative duty, so he was his uh, weapon was taken, and he was working a desk job, <clears throat> and the city paid this kid's family $5 million a week after uh, the runoff, the special mayoral runoff where Rahm elected was Rahm Emanuel was reelected mayor of Chicago. All of this is under wraps. There are few people who are speaking out about it, uh, but it's mainly under wraps when kind of an unknown journalist comes and sues the, the city to get a hold of some of the video footage. What in, what ensues as a result is the court's, of course, get a hold of this and mandate that Chicago release the video to the public. And that was just a few weeks ago. <clears throat> so this past week on Wednesday, there's a big press conference where the state's attorney uh, announces that she's pressing charges, where the city fires the cop, and then they brace for this release of the video. If you see the video, you can tell why people are outraged. Yeah, this I saw kid, the video. It was... It was- it was you couldn't you could hardly watch you can hardly watch and and the fact that there's no sound on any of the videos that the burger king uh right on the corner uh has 80 minutes of footage missing from their security cameras because the policemen went in 
and that there are a number of other dash cam videos with no sound on it. It's all, it all comes together uh, to make a, a convincing case that there's a cover-up here. Mm-hmm. Now, this is two months after Ferguson, basically, when this happens. And it's right in front of, again, a hotly contested mayoral election. And the mayor of Chicago says that he did not see the video. He was going to see it for the first time when everybody else saw it. Well, that's unbelievable, too, because for the city to award the family of the uh, kid who was slain $5 million with he or the city council not having seen the video is preposterous. It is unbelievable. Furthermore, um, it would not have made it out to the public without the uh, injunction of the court and so this is literally an illustration of how to get away with murder. <laughs> uh, what you see here is this, the, La, Laquan McDonald was a ward of the state. He had been so since his early years. His mother was basically incapacitated and unable to take care of him for varying reasons. And from what I understand, his grandmother had the larger influence in his life. He is um, an orphan, mm-hmm. to say the least, and he is part of that group of the least, the lost, and the left out, somebody whom the church should care about. And um, he clearly was struggling with some issues, but that was no reason for him to be gunned down. And he was gunned down by a cop, a white police officer, who uh, has had several other infractions that had cost the city $350,000 previously, several complaints. But the way that our system works in Chicago is that an officer's record does not move or transfer with him from one precinct to the next. So imagine if there are complaints leveled against you in the 5th precinct, when you move to the 12th precinct, then that record does not transfer. They never go cumulative until it's time for an officer either to uh, retire or resign. That's when you get the full record. It's an old paper system, outdated. And, and Chicago has its share of corruption. So, I mean, you could sense in this that this cop had been rogue. He had been uh, undisciplined, no matter how much training he's had. He should not have been on the streets. And the city had record of that and nonetheless let him stay on the force. Wow. That is, all of that is unbelievable, um, especially in the age of technology like that. The fact that they haven't even changed their procedures um, because everything in the age of information, um, you would think that that would have changed already. Well, I think not only that, you would think that somebody would care enough uh, to to keep someone like him off the street who who knew it. And and I think even at the highest level we see with the state's attorney and the superintendent of police and even our mayor, that there was not a genuine concern about the action of this police officer and this incident at the beginning to be transparent and to make it known to the city. So when the people at the top don't really care, then I don't think there's any uh, impetus or motivation pressed upon the others in the rank and file to demonstrate care and concern. Very true. Um, I know you've been um, very active um, in protesting. Um, I've been following you on Twitter and I know you've done um, several um, periscopes um, in relationship to the protest. How has that experience been? It's wild, man. I wish <clears throat> I wish you guys could come to Chicago and do this with us. Yesterday, we marched uh, from um, Michigan and Wacker, which is kind of the start of uh, Chicago's famed Magnificent Mile. It's Black Friday yesterday. 
biggest shopping day of the year downtown Chicago. And and my guess was there was about 3,000, maybe 4,000 uh, people down there who marched through the stores and very, very little was able to be done in terms of shopping or entering stores on that day. And so it was really moving, to be honest with you, to see so many people and to see black clergy leading the way uh, in this protest to say to the economic power structure of Chicago that you need to care about what's going on <clears throat> Excuse me, in our neighborhoods. And yet there is this strange, eerie, uncomfortable rebellion and rejection with, quite frankly, millennials uh, against kind of the older establishment group of black clergy who lead civil rights efforts. I understand a lot of it, but there were about three or four groups that converged in the one march yesterday, and the messages, uh, though similar in tone and in pitch, uh, still had some dissonance between the age groups, and uh, and that was frightening and alarming to me. But nonetheless, it was a powerful sight to see uh, that many people taking to the streets Chicago to make streets of Chicago to make this point known. Um, and to your point on the millennials, I, I see that. And I was telling you before we started recording that um, sometimes when I'm talking to my peers, uh, we seem to be very um, zealous um, to the point where we we seem like we we just like to be angry, but we don't want to take the necessary steps or listen to our elders and and look at the ways the um, the ways that they've made or or the uh, steps that they take. We kind of want to kind of take it from them without listening to them. Um, I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, sure. And and I think it, at least two reactions come to mind. One is. The group of young people, especially who've been leading this, these protests in Chicago, have very little, if any, connection to the local church. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that Chicago is representative of the rest of the nation in this regard. So you got a lot of young people, a lot of zeal, a lot of passion. But this is probably, uh, in terms of young people who were born in the early 90s, maybe late 80s, like 89, and, but more so 92, 93, 94, they, they have their generation – who some of them, their parents went to church, but did not mandate that they go. And that's if their folks went at all. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s and 60s, whereas the church used to be the locus or the center of the neighborhood, and everybody had kind of a communal, societal, reverential respect for the church and for uh, pastors, that doesn't exist with these kids who were born in the early 90s. I mean, literally, it does not exist. Mm-hmm. The the days of, of young people growing up in, in the church in mass may be behind us. And so their zeal is strong, but it's rather uninformed, both by history and by the biblical record. Mm-hmm. So the fact that marching works is attributable to generations of Americans who took to the streets in massive protest. Mm-hmm. And many of them were led by black clergy, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But this generation does well no longer perceives uh, the significance of that generation. And so case in point, illustration. Yesterday, the, the march ends at the Water Tower. If you've been to Chicago, you know where that is, North Michigan Avenue. And there's media from everywhere, thousands of people, uh, marchers and protesters around. And Reverend Jesse Jackson has the microphone, and he's uh, making his appeal. He's doing his famous... A call and response. I am somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's talking about like, I am somebody. 
And then he says, let's pause to pray. You know, he starts praying. And man, these people come up with bullhorns. And the stuff they said, I cannot say on this recording. But they are shouting while he's praying, wow. uh, leveling all kinds of profanity and and uh, slogans of disrespect to Reverend Jackson. Now, now, <laughs> regardless of what you think of Reverend Jackson, which I know the jury is split. <laughs> you, you know, there is Cedric the Entertainer's famous words in the original film Barbershop on Jesse Jackson. That regardless of what you feel from there, there should be nonetheless. This, this, yeah, respect and appreciation for his uh, legacy and his work and his role and work with Dr. King and uh, SCLC and moving the conversation forward and push and uh, Operation Breadbasket. But there's no historical context with some of these young people toward that. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, Paul makes the argument in, in Romans 10. He says, my uh, brother, my heart's prayer and desire for Israel is that they might be saved. Mm-hmm. I bear them record that they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the people I saw yesterday got a lot of zeal, mm-hmm. but it ain't according to biblical knowledge. <laughs> so, so the underpinnings of the protest, the foundation, the grounds upon which we make our claims and even level our demands are not biblical in nature. Mm-hmm. And And this is the tragedy for what we're seeing. You cannot demand outcomes in a moral conversation when your arguments are not informed by biblical principles of righteousness and justice. Mm -hmm. And so to get at a table with the authorities and public powers and not have a moral ground or moral compass or sufficient moral compass to make your demands is counterproductive. Mm -hmm. In one sense, it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So they end up arguing... In, in the way that they behave, they end up arguing against the claims or the cases they want to make with their mouths. Mm-hmm. And and so I think this is a this is a telltale sign for the church right now. It is a massive red light for us. Uh, there needs to be some kind of intentional engagement between our elders and this new millennial generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, intention. I don't. I don't think it's as simple as you know, gospel rap or hip hop. Right? No, I. I think that some significant bridge building has got to be done. And to the point, I'd like to uh, recommend to your listeners, if if you have many who are in the 50s, 60s, 70s age range, there needs to be some intentional platform sharing with some young people under 35 to develop and to leverage the power, rather, of a platform to develop young leaders who can have a more forceful voice in the public square, and that specifically in the church. I, I think everybody, and, and I appreciate some of the doors that have been open to me, but it, it needs to happen uh, beyond me. Uh, universities, uh, publishing houses, uh, pastors, preachers, conferences, we need to start including younger well-trained um, Christian young people on these platforms in mass numbers. But without it, without it, uh, the voice and the influence I think we have in the public square is going to wane even more. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Yeah, because unity is so important. You know, we spend a lot of time in the um, the hot um, button issue in our days 
racial reconciliation, but we also need this kind of generational reconciliation within the African-American community, because in order to make real progress, we're going to have to have unity. And absolutely. That can't happen if the younger um, are rebellious against the wisdom of the older and then the the older turn their nose um, at the um, younger. Well, Paul writes it in the in the scriptures, does he not? I mean, there there is this command for older women, look out for the younger women and younger women pay attention to the older women the same with with men because i think it's <clears throat> unity is is essential it is important but i i think underneath that or beyond that is a transfer of heritage and wisdom and knowledge that there is over and over again even in deuteronomy there's this command for children to be set down at a table to be told the stories of God's great deliverance in yesteryear. Mm -hmm. The implication is that when that happens, though they were not alive when stones were taken from the, the Jordan or from the Red Sea, they have context through relationship that connects them to God's great work. And, and so my cry, and I want to be clear about this, isn't just to platform leaders, but it is to share life and stories and mm -hmm. to share experiences with younger people so that the unity is not fabricated. Mm -hmm. Our unity is not a result of a gospel proposition. Mm -hmm. It is the result of gospel practices, of living out uh, in faith and in community uh, intentional, authentic relationships between the generations. <clears throat> Amen. What What would you like our listeners to know about Chicago what would be your message to the evangelical world because the for for so many the response is well I don't hear you guys protesting when there's black on black crime that's always sure. the token response and yeah. we know that Chicago um uh, is known we uh Spike Lee has Chirac uh is it Chirac, Chirac coming out yeah. and so there's this Thing in the media like why, why are you not paying attention or why is this not great po protests um, or outcry during black on black crimes what what would you like to say to those responses yeah you know there are people who live in Chicago who never hear gunshots they never hear the sirens of ambulances they do not come in contact with trauma and grief on around the issues of violence because of where they live. So one of the essential things you need to understand about Chicago is that it is one of the most segregated world-class citizens, world-class cities in the world. And so what that means is a lot of what you see on television, even what Spike Lee is trying to capture in his movie Chirac, happens in select neighborhoods and really two parts of town, the south and west side, and certain parts of the south and west side. So if you live north or you live in the Gold Coast or you live even further south or farther west, you don't really come in contact with this. Mm -hmm. uh, what you also should know is that uh, the police are in, shoot a citizen in Chicago about once a week. Oh, wow. And, and so some of the, <laughs> some of the <laughs> stuff you see, you think, oh, well, man, that's just one black person killing another black person. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, they're, they're, we need your prayers. That's for sure. I think there is something spiritually dark that has unle been unleashed in Chicago. And, and I, you know, I know there are folk who be like, man, I'm not charismatic. I'm not, I'm not talking anything other than the scriptures. This is principalities and rulers of wick wickedness and high places mm -hmm. 
that's at work here in Chicago. Because, for instance, the, the kid, the nine-year-old uh, Tyshawn Lee, who was assassinated essentially four weeks ago, um, and it is said in retaliation to a vendetta held with his father, lured into a, an alley and shot execution style, is spiritual wickedness. I mean, these are not high-priced thugs we're talking about. This isn't money laundering of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. These are, these are, I hate to say it this way, petty drug offenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we need a spiritual revival and awakening in Chicago more than anything else. And I say that in relationship to this cop, too. I mean, training is not going to fix a, a white cop saying, I'm going to shoot this N-word and emptying his clip on a kid. That, that's not going to fix him. He has a corroded nature. He needs to be converted. His heart needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. It's a dark heart that does that. And so those of you who uh, are not here in Chicago, I would say be praying for us. Pray for the local pastors that we would preach with boldness, clarity, vigor, and conviction. Pray for um, the Spirit of God to grant us revival in this city that he would capture the hearts of young people and open their minds to behold the treasure and the richness of his word, where they learn who they are and how valuable they are. And they come to terms with their brokenness. And then they, they come to the beauty of the redemptive power of the gospel. I would pray, I would say pray for economic justice. Part of the problem in our city is a significant part is educational and economic. It is that the, the, top percentages, the highest percentages of our city's elite have the enormous amount of wealth. And so, for instance, the church where I serve sits right next to the uh, Chicago White Sox Stadium and across the street is a housing project. And literally, there are young people in that housing project who've never been downtown. And our church is 35 blocks south of the center of downtown. So you could see the skyline from the rooftops of the housing projects across the street but you've mm-hmm. never been there. So you've got kids who live in, uh, re- in comparison, they live in poverty, but they are surrounded by extreme wealth. That creates a resentment in their hearts. And so, so something has to happen, I think, educationally, where the kids get a better shot at getting a solid education, which in America has been a proven way to kind of help build economic power, but also where there is a distribution of wealth that favors poor people. So this isn't clearly just black people, but it's poor people in Chicago across the board who are affected disproportionately by violence and by drugs. And so where there is opportunity to earn sustainable, livable wages, you see a decrease in crime. Mm -hmm. And so those are some very practical things that I would encourage uh, your listeners to do and to know um, and, and to know this, that what's happening in Chicago is a breath away from happening in other major cities around the nation but uh but i think the enemy has been having a field day here in the city and and you can pray for us on monday we are a uh, number of churches are meeting here progressive at about five fifteen, and then uh, we are marching to the police headquarters here in chicago mm-hmm. which is about seven blocks from our church and uh, about seven to ten actually from our church and we solicit your prayers we, we're going literally to pray we're not trying to get a bunch of attention uh, if it happens, it happens, but we're we're taking our churches, emptying our churches, as it were, on Monday night to go pray because uh, the police need help mm-hmm. and our mayor needs help. And we want to we want to call for 
justice to be done, to roll down like a stream, and uh, and that God Amen. would do something <laughs> remarkable here in Chicago. Amen. What would you say to the people that um, may be in the evangelical circles that say, well, you know, protesting and all that um, seems to lean too much on a social gospel? Um, how would you respond to them? Um, well, I think, Lisa, there are at least two kinds of heresy. And I'm not trying to get in trouble here, but I'll, I'll say it. One heresy is strictly propositional. It is ascribing the wrong adverbs or adjectives to the person of God. Mm-hmm. There is another kind of heresy that gets the propositions right, but, but does the living wrong. Mm-hmm. The orthopraxy doesn't line up with the orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say to someone who would think or, or recite what you just said, that there is a fluid... Uh, transition from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. In fact, they overlap. They they go together. And where you have one right doctrine, but you don't have um, standing up for the least, the lost, the left out, then you do not have the other. Mm-hmm. And and so there is no such thing to me as a social gospel. The gospel doesn't need any adjectives. Mm-hmm. Social. Amen prosperity, anything else. It just is what it is. And, I, and I'm and i convinced as I read the scriptures that you see Jesus irate and outraged over people who are taken advantage of. That What is the message of the prophets, if not a cry for justice? And what is the book of Revelation, if not the story of Jesus Christ making right what has been wrong? And so I would say to your listeners, read the Bible anew. You know, maybe look at it uh, with some uh, not-so-privileged eyes mm-hmm. and and see it for the raw reality of what it is. For, furthermore, Jesus is clearly rejected by the religious establishment of his day. I mean, he is a, a outcast. He's a peasant preacher. And he doesn't even seem to care that the religious elite uh, think highly of him. He is serving those whom they have forgotten and looked over. And And I would urge your listeners to do the same. Start serving and caring about those who've been forgotten and looked over. Amen. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners, Pastor Dates? Uh, pray for us It is essentially it. Pray for us. Uh, we got a generation who, as G.K. Chesterton said, is weary of hearing what they have never heard. And uh, our effort here in the city is we're, we're trying to communicate the gospel in a way that people will will listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So pray for us to that end. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Dates. You got it. My pleasure. Always a joy to be with you, Lisa. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it